We've taken our, we've been taking our time going through this rich gospel, sort of savoring it as we do and studying it in depth, and hopefully you see this as the main course of our worship of God. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that when the Thessalonians heard the word of God preached to them, they did not accept it just as the words of men, but that they accepted it for what it really is, the word of God. But he continues on to say that this word is that which also performs its work in you, for those who you believe. And he says, so in the context of what he is saying here is, knowing that the word of God performs its work in us, it sanctifies us, it protects us, it strengthens us, it makes us wise that we spend a great deal of time working our way through the scriptures and trying to understand it and apply it to our lives. And so when Jesus starts to speak of things eternal, things that have uh, significant consequences as it relates to the perpetual state of our souls, we need to be diligent in making sure we understand it, and then we need to make sure that we exercise it rightly in our day-to-day lives. This is a text whereby we joined the psalmist when he wrote in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He said, Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And this morning, I have to admit, is one of those times where the text that we're about to look upon requires every single one of us to look seriously and soberly at our own hearts in careful, soul-searching examination. The most learned, the most seasoned, the most God-fearing of saints need to ask themselves the questions that we're about to ask of ourselves as it relates to this text. Because nothing short of eternity is on the line. So in Luke chapter 17, beginning verse 22, we find that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified on the cross. But the context of what we've been looking at here in chapter 17 is that of Jesus prophesying of his own return. He's been talking about how things will be in the last day before he returns. It wasn't necessarily this sequence of events that Jesus was trying to instruct us on here. But the thing that Jesus has been emphasizing the most in this section is that his coming judgment will be at a time when it is least expected by the majority of people. We saw that last time in verse 27 and 28 where Jesus described the kinds of activities that people would be doing in the last days, much like in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. He said they were eating and drinking, marrying, building, planning, much like people are doing today and have been doing for the past 2,000 years. In fact, we know from 2 Peter 3.3 that since it's been over 2,000 years, that there will even be people who scoff at the idea of the return of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.3 says this, that know this first of all, that in the last day mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Jude 18 says a similar thing. But no matter how many warnings are given to them that there is a coming judgment, a majority of the world will be so caught up with the day-to-day living and business as usual that they will never even give any consideration for eternity. And they will be caught off guard 
and unprepared when the Lord returns for judgment, much like the days of Noah and Lot. But the great physician of souls is, is going to say some things in our text this morning to graphically illustrate that when he returns for judgment, a separation will occur to such an extent that it will be less than obvious who will be taken to glory and who will be left for wrath and for judgment. So let's get into our text this morning in Luke chapter 17. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin in verse 22 of Luke chapter 17. God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word says this, And He said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look here, look here, do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking. They were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left there will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and one will be, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And we just pray this morning that we would not look upon it lightly, that we would see the truths that you have revealed to us through it, and that we would apply it, and that we would heed your warnings and your admonitions. Father, we just pray that we would learn of you today so that we can worship you in spirit and truth, and to honor you, and to someday be with you in paradise. Father, we just thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was uh, somewhere in the late 1700s, 18, early 1800s, that a Baptist pastor by the name of Robert Hall was ministering at a church in Cambridge, England. And one day while he was there, he was having this vigorous discussion with another clergyman about the reform that was drastically needed within the church. 
And this particular minister that Hall was having this discussion with made a very lucrative living in the established Church of England. He was very handsomely paid for his being a minister of the gospel, and it was very profitable for him to be in that position. When pressed hard on the need for the reforms that Hall was calling for, this clergyman responded, I can't see it. I don't see it. I simply cannot see it at all. Well, then Hall got an idea in his mind to help him understand what exactly he was calling for. And so he pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket, and he grabbed a pencil, and he wrote down one word on the back of it, and he held it up for the man to see. And the word that he wrote down was the word God. And then Robert Hall asked his fellow minister, he says, do you see that? The clergyman was a little bit perplexed by what Hall was doing. He said, yes, yes, I do. Then Hall took out a single gold coin out of his pocket, and he placed it over the word God, and he asked, do you see it now? And the clergyman said, no, I simply can't see it at all. And then Hall replied to him, now you understand exactly your problem. And with that, I must wish you a good morning, sir. And he spun around, and he walked away, and he left the clergyman with his thoughts. Nothing in this world is more revealing of the true state of our hearts, of our devotion to the Lord, of our spiritual life, and even our view of God himself, than how we view and use our money and possessions. More often than not, our possessions, our money, and the things of this world come into our lives, and they start to take primacy above everything else, and they become central to our lives. And before you know it, we start to overvalue the things of this world, and we undervalue God. We give more attention to the temporal than we do the eternal. Our spiritual sight starts to focus on the material, and we start to lose sight of the spiritual. And slowly but surely, the things of this world start to crowd out God as having the chief seats within our own hearts. And one of the most subtle moves in the devil's playbook is to constantly throw things before you in order to somehow keep you preoccupied and from ever having time to spend with your God. Because we really are creatures committed to things. And it's part of the curse of the society in which we live. And before you know it, those things, whether it be a a house, a newer car, a wardrobe, a bigger bank account, retirement account, multiplying stocks, you name it, They have so preoccupied us and consumed our thoughts that there is little to no room for God in our lives. Matthew Mead, a Puritan, wrote in his book, A Name in Heaven, he said, The creatures of most men are perishing, earthly, cankered, and moth-eaten treasures. Where is yours, O Christian? Is it in the world or is it in the next? Is it in the present vanities? Or future glory? Is it in the present commitments or is it in the everlasting inheritance? Is it in profits, pleasures, and honors? Or is it in grace and glory? Do you build, plant, and sow for heaven? Many profess the hope of heaven, but meanwhile in their conversations they savor earthly things. 
If a man's profession is ever so heavenly, but he is overtaken by earthly living, that man's religion is vain. Never talk of a name in heaven as long as your heart is buried in the earth. End quote. Or as the Lord Jesus Christ put it this way in Luke chapter 12 and verse 34, he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wasn't talking about an anatomical location of your heart, but he was talking about your motives, your attitudes, the meditations of your thoughts. What particular object do you spend most of your time thinking, planning, and your energy on? And more often than not, It's money, possessions, and the things of this world that always seem to be at the top of our list. And in all honesty, in our own practical experience as Christians, it seems to be that we all wrestle with this at some time or another. And we cry out with that hymn writer who wrote, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The Bible is replete with example after example of people who have perished because of the love of riches and the love of the things of this world. And we need to learn this because it is absolutely destructive to ourselves and to those around us. Achan in Joshua chapter 7, instead of inheriting the promised land, he died with his entire family because he decided to take what God had forbade him to take. And because of his love of money and possessions, when he saw a beautiful garment and some coins, he took them and then he stashed them in the ground in his tent. And the Lord confronted him through Joshua who said to him, you had better confess your sin because you are going to die. And he did. Him and his entire family died. Solomon and Ecclesiastes kept amassing fortune and possessions until he was the wealthiest man in the world. And when he reached that position, he said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. It was all empty. It was useless, meaningless, and void. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 decided to keep some of the money back that they had promised to the Lord. And God struck them dead. Judas in Matthew 27 verse 5, For a mere 30 pieces of silver sold the Son of God into the hands of the Jews. And then eventually went out and hung himself. Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul said of them, him that he has forsaken me because he loved this present world. There are many illustrations of people who were devastated and destroyed to some degree because of their love of money, love of possessions, and all that the world has to offer. And our text this morning is yet one more example And yet Jesus is giving his disciples and us a warning about it against preferring the things of this world to him. Look at beginning in verse 31. It says, On that day, meaning the return of Christ, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. In first century Israel, the housetop was uh, this patio, and it had the many gardens up there. It's much like people have decks and porches today where you, you would go out and you would sit outside with your wife and have a cup of coffee and listen to the birds sing. It would be a place where you'd go out and hang out during the day. But in first century Israel, it was on the rooftop. They put potted plants around the edge up there. They had chairs and places to recline, and they enjoyed the outdoors on the the patio on the top of the house. 
And then they had this outside staircase in order to get down to the ground. And the warning is, is that if you're up there and you're lounging around, you see the judgment beginning to come, don't even go down and get your stuff out. Don't go get your prized possessions. Don't go and try to get the things that you think are precious to you. Don't do that. Just get out of there because judgment is coming. This isn't like a hurricane that's coming or a a fire that's raging toward your house where you should grab some things because there might be a point in the future where you can rebuild. And likewise, if you're in the field and you're dressed only in your tunic, don't run into your house and change your clothes and grab a few things before you're fleeing because if you do so, you are really showing that Jesus Christ does not have preeminence in your life, yet something else does. But there is no future for this world in this day. It's all going to be destroyed. The whole earth is going to be transformed and reconfigured, and nothing of the past needs to be taken into glory of the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. This is the shortest verse in the Bible, but nonetheless, it is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In fact, the word here, remember, is in the present imperative tense. It means remember and keep on remembering. This is for you and I today. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't forget your history. Now, you can't remember Lot's wife if you don't know who she is and what happened to her. And it all happened way back in the book of Genesis. Lot was Abraham's nephew. He had decided to settle in Sodom with his wife there. His two daughters were there, and it was an exceedingly sinful city. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 20 tells us that it was so sinful that it needed to be completely obliterated from the earth because there wasn't, they couldn't even find ten righteous people found in the whole place. And so two angels come, and the angels urge Lot in Genesis 19.15, Lot, take your wife and your two daughters that are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Fire and brimstone is going to come down like a volcano, raining on your head with gas and sulfur. Everybody's going to be destroyed. But even Lot hesitated, so the men, the angels, they seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his daughter, and the compassion of the Lord was upon them. And they brought him out, and they put him outside the city. And it came about that when they had got them outside, that one said, escape. The angel said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. Lot panicked. He said, oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've magnified your loving kindness, which you've showed me by saving my life, but I can't escape to the mountains. And he's basically saying, I'm not that fast. How am I going to get there? They might look close, but they're further than you think, and I may not get up high enough on the mountain, and this disaster is going to overtake me, and I might die. There was a town nearby named Zoar. And in verse 22, he flees to Zoar, and he went there, and he was spared, he with his two daughters. But then in verse 24 of Genesis 19, here comes Lot's wife into the scene. The only other place in the Bible besides Luke 17 that she is mentioned. And it says this, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground, but his wife from behind him. 
looked back, she became a pillar of salt. This is Lot's wife. She was destroyed on the brink of safety. She came close, but she could never let go of the world. She was the rocky soil that springs up for a little while, but no true repentance there, and it dies under pressure. She was the weedy soil that springs up for a little while, never bears any fruit. The love of the world's riches choke it out. The outside of her was running, but the inside of her and her actions reflected her desires. Do your actions reflect your desires? Perhaps you've taken a few steps towards God. You've heard the gospel, but you haven't received Christ by faith. You've made a profession of faith, but you haven't been obedient in being baptized. You've removed a few things from your life that you know are sinful, but you are still just holding on to those darling little sins. Maybe you've tried to hide your lust, but you've not tried to quench it. Maybe you tried to disguise your gossip under the disguise of a prayer request. Maybe you've tried to conceal your covetousness, but not mortify it. Maybe you've learned the art of camouflaging pride with a false humility. Listen, you and I need to be sin-killing machines. John Owen once famously said, be killing sin or it will kill you. We need to take every thought captive and bring it into conformity to Christ. We need to set our mind on things above and not below. We need to ask the Lord to search us and try us and see if there is any hurtful way about us. We need to lay aside every encumbrance in sin which so easily entangles us, and we need to run. Not walk, we need to run. We need to run to safety like Lot. Are you running this morning? Are you running from your sin? Are you imbibing in it? Are you running from sin and running to Jesus Christ? If not, what are your heartstrings tied to that you haven't surrendered and come all the way to following Jesus Christ? What sin is there in your life that keeps tripping you up as you've tried to run the race that is set before you? If you were to take inventory of your life, What is that one thing that seems to keep getting in your way of fully following Jesus Christ? We need to remember Lot's wife. So what else should we remember about her? We need to remember she had a great number of spiritual advantages, and she still didn't make it. As I mentioned in Genesis 19 and Luke 17 are the only two places that she's mentioned. And as far as we know, Lot's wife was from Sodom. The Bible isn't explicit on this, but before Lot was roaming around with his uncle Abraham, raising flocks and herd, there is no mention of her being with Lot. And so when Abraham and Lot separate back in Genesis 13, there's no mention of his wife going with him. Then in Genesis 14, Lot had been in Sodom for a while, and this battle broke out between uh, four kings against five. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into some tar pits in the valley, and so their towns were raided for food, and and they took Lot, who was living there. But then Abraham raised up and, and went with 318 men and rescued his nephew. And it says he brought back Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. 
And so she was more than likely introduced to the Lord and godliness and righteousness through Lot. Because we're told in 2 Peter 2.7 that Lot was a righteous man and he felt his soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. He didn't like what he was seeing. And you can believe when he is laying down beside his wife at night, he had to unload it off of his chest. That's what married couples do, especially when you have kids. That's about the only time sometimes you can do that, right? Even in Sodom. Her husband kept up such a, a, separate, a separateness as he could in such an evil place that she saw the goodness of a man, even with all of his mistakes. She, she had Lot for her husband. She had Abraham for an uncle who was the father of the faithful. She hosted angelic beings because when Sodom was to be destroyed, the angels came into her house and she herself helped entertain them. She saw a miraculous sign. And that the men of the city were trying to burst into her home, both young and old, trying to come in and have relations with the two angels that were in her house. And it says the angel struck the men with blindness. She received a merciful warning to escape, as well as her husband. And she was urged, just as much as he was, to flee from the wrath so near at hand. And so one of the things that this teaches us, beloved, is that there is no such thing as salvation by proxy. If your husband is a God-fearing person, it does not mean that you're going to make it into heaven. If your uncle by marriage, Abraham, is in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it doesn't mean you're going to make it to heaven. And these things are true for us today. You will never go to heaven just because your parents are Christians. Never. You will never go to heaven because your husband or wife is a God-fearing person. It doesn't work that way. If your dad is a pastor, it does not mean that you suddenly get a golden ticket into heaven. It's a great spiritual privilege to be raised in a godly home. It's a blessing to be brought up in the prayers of a mother and a father. And let me tell you from personal experience, it is a mercy of God for you to be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ at such a young age. But if you don't love Christ, if you don't cherish Christ, if you don't make Christ your own, if you don't have a repentance of your own, a faith of your own, and sanctification of your own, you're no better than Lot's wife. and You will fall short of entering the kingdom of God. We need to remember Lot's wife. We need to remember that the love of the world and the things of this world will lead to your destruction. As Spurgeon expressed, her turning around was like his lingering love glance. Her eye turned to where her treasure was. Her possessions, her security, her ease and her comfort was found in Sodom and not in the things of this world. Or they were rather found in the things of the world and not in the things of God. Much like this clergyman that Robert Hall had confronted and he couldn't see God because of the, the things clouded her vision and thus she proved that she was not fit for the kingdom of God. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. James 4.4, 4, it says, You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. 
And as I said before, nothing in this world is more revealing of the true state of our hearts than how we view our money and our possessions, and such is the case with Lot's wife. Perhaps as she was fleeing, she thought of that vase that her mother had given her that was on the mantle. Maybe there was some treasured possession she thought back and said, I've got to go get that. Perhaps she thought of that mattress money that she had stashed in there for that rainy day. It could have been any number of things. We don't know explicitly. But J.C. Ryle, he said this, he goes, I warn you affectionately that your soul is in great danger. The world passes away, and those who cling to the world and think only of the world will pass away with it into everlasting ruin. Awake to know your peril before it be too late. Awake and flee to the wrath to come. The time is short. The end of all things is at hand. The shadow are lengthening. The sun is going down. The night comes when no man can work. The great white throne will soon be set and the judgment will begin. The books will be opened. Awake and come out of the world while it is still called today. We're to remember Lot's wife. Charles Spurgeon once said, Your possessions, they are never so safe as when you are willing to resign them. and You are never so rich as when you put all you have into the hands of God. But then Jesus gives this paradoxical statement in verse 33. And we've seen this before in Luke chapter 9. He said, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that you must die to self and you must live to Christ. You must constantly live in a state of self-denial. And so what is he talking about those who wish to save their life or lose their life? Because if we break this down and look at the first part of this, it says that those who wish to save their life will lose it. In other words, it means that those who seek their own preservation or those who live with selfish ambition will be actually the ones who will lose their life. Living for your own ambitions and mind, trusting in your own satisfaction and security, focusing on protecting yourself so you don't make any personal, interpersonal investments, And folks, this is huge right now in the whole home church movement. They just want to love one another, stay at home with this little family, meet in a house, hang together, and, and, and for whatever reason. But they don't want to submit to any kind of biblical church leadership. They don't want to have pastors and teachers. The very thing that Jesus Christ gave as a gift to the church for the equipping of the saints and for the building up the body of Christ... They don't have a biblical ecclesiology or biblical doctrine of the church because they don't want to invest in any costly interpersonal relationships. They want to stay at home, but someone who wants to seek their own life recoils into hiding when conversations about spiritual things come about. When hardships or persecution because of identifying with Christ comes their way, they back down and they retreat into isolation. And sadly and tragically, Jesus says that they will be the ones who lose their life, not just physically, but spiritually and eternally. But on the other hand, Jesus says that those who lose their lives for my sake will end up saving it. It means that you depend on Jesus Christ and His strength to help you accomplish everything that He has put before you. It means that you value the lives of others so much so that you are willingly and sacrificially giving of your time and money so that they may know Christ. 
We labor and strive for His honor and not our own. We live for His glory and not our own. We give people the good news about the salvation in Jesus Christ, and even if they end up rejecting that message and rejecting us. It means that we are to expend ourselves for the sake of knowing Christ and making Him known. In other words, to live my life for the now, to focus solely on stuff and material things, to live only in the now and the benefits that I accrue in this world is to deny myself the possibility of real and true happiness. But if I am prepared to give all of that up and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and set my hope and and my heart in the world to come, only then will I make that discovery of genuine, lasting happiness. Are you a happy person? Could it be perhaps you have not set your hope in heaven? How much commitment did you make this week in knowing Jesus Christ and making Him known? How much sacrifice, whether it be your time, your money, your physical exertion, did you expend for the sake of the gospel of Christ? How much time did you spend this week in even just thinking about how you can help some other person follow Jesus Christ more fully? You see, we are called to give our lives away. And and by the grace of God, we will end up saving it. He who loses his life for my sake, he is the one that will save it. And Jesus tells us that when He comes, the separation from the godly and the ungodly may even occur within some families. And He uses these three illustrations to make that point, beginning in verse 34. It says, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Now, verse 36, you'll notice, is in some brackets, which simply means that it's not found in the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts, and it was possibly copied by a scribe from Matthew 24.40. But one commentator, he tried to make this case that this is salvation and judgment is going to sort of uh, coincide with the earth's rotation on the axis you know, at the nighttime and then the daytime as the earth is spinning. But Jesus has already taught us that his coming is going to be like lightning that flashes from one part of the sky to the next. I think that was verse 24. But the point is, whether it's night or day, whether you're sleeping or working, physical nearness to a godly person will not save you. I had a a little scare this morning. About 3.30 this morning, I rolled over. And I like to take the arm and throw it over Brandy's head, make sure she's there, but she was gone. And so I did what any technology savvy person does instead of getting out of that warm bed and trying to go find her. I grabbed my phone and I texted her and I said, where are you? Hoping that she would not reply, I'm in heaven, sorry about your luck. And so by the mercy of God, she simply just texted back two words, you snore. (laughs) And so I knew I was in the clear with the Lord this morning. It scared me for a minute. There was no one in my bed, and she was there when I went to bed. But the most intimate of relationships will not guarantee your entrance into heaven. You won't be able to name drop your favorite preacher and have a place in eternity. 
But Jesus' point here is that people who may be sharing almost the exact same situation in life will find themselves on the opposite sides of eternity. And so what this tells us is your workplace is a mission field. Your doctor's office is a mission field. Your own home, maybe with your spouse and your children, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, whatever is a mission field where people need to hear the life-saving grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Then notice this odd statement in verse 37. Verse 37 says, In answering they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. And so after all that, this is one of those questions the disciples ask, and you scratch your head, and you have to wonder, why in the world did they ask this question? You know, what are they seeking to know by asking the question, where? Now, I'd love to say that I have the perfect answer to this question, but I think I have an answer to this question. Perhaps they are asking, where will the one left in bed be from verse 34? Where will be the one left who was grinding in verse 35? Where will be the one left in the field in verse 36? And so perhaps they are still confused that the Lord's return would be this worldwide event, and they want to know where in this specific location that this is all going to happen. But to not be gathered with Christ means to be left for destruction. And that's why he's using this illustration of the vultures. We've all seen this before. Vultures circling above is a sure sign that there is something dead below. And if you're in the woods and you look up and you see the vultures circling around you, it means it's time for you to move. And you're driving down a backcountry road and you see vultures up ahead. There's more than likely this dead raccoon on the road or a deer in the ditch or something like that. And so perhaps they're asking, where for that reason? Where are we going to see these things? Perhaps that's the only answer we have. But eternal life hangs on the balance of whether or not we are ready for His return. Whether we have truly placed our hearts in heaven or whether we've placed them on the things of this earth. And these verses should cause us to stop and consider carefully whether or not we are, not, we are looking for the, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Or whether we've placed our hope in riches, possessions, something in this world. 2 Peter 3.3 3 says this, or excuse me, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. Since all of these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Are you living a godly life? Is your life well a well-pleasing aroma to the Lord? Or is it laced with the pungent odor of the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah? If you are treasuring something in this world over God, ask Him to help you love it less and to help you love Him all the more. Are you ready for the return 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because you want to be with him? Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would stamp these truths deep into our hearts, that we would be looking for the great and glorious appearing, the visible bodily appearing of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would not be attached to anything in this world, God, but our hearts would be attached to Jesus Christ, that we would love him all the more. Father, we confess to you that our hearts often grow cold. We don't love you as we ought to. We don't seek your wisdom like we should. We don't depend upon your strength like we should. But Father, help us to disentangle from ourselves and to tie our hearts to you, bounded to you, abiding in Christ and trusting in him depending on His strength and His grace that comes upon us time and time again. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that we might remember Lot's wife. Amen.